I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa Simone, And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. After President Biden's Build Back Better Act stalled in late 2021, largely due to resistance from Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the Democrats rallied to pass the so-called Inflation Reduction Act along party lines in August of 2022. In today's episode, we break down the tax policy changes embedded in the plan. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. We have no time for small talk today because we've got a substantial piece of legislation to unpack. Absolutely. And I promise to refrain from obscure movie, TV, and music references for the next 20-odd minutes. Impressive. And I'm willing to admit that we've probably already wasted too much time talking about all the time that we don't have to waste. So let's get on with the show. Agreed. Okay. What is on our to-do list for today? I say we go big. I like it. And try to do five things. Number one, outline differences between the Build Back Better Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Number two, give an overview of the energy tax incentive in the bill. Number three, talk about the corporate tax increases to fund spending provisions. Number four, discuss the IRS budget increase. And number five, discuss whether the Inflation Reduction Act will, in fact, reduce inflation. What do you think? Can we do it? Not a chance. Love and optimism. Thanks. It is what I do. Well, I'm going to give it a shot. Let's start at the beginning with how the Inflation Reduction Act came to be. It all started with President Biden's Build Back Better Act, which called for $3.5 trillion in spending aimed at climate change, healthcare, and more support for families with children. Republicans were largely not on board with the plan. Shocker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which meant Dems needed every last vote in the Senate to pass legislation. Enter Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Even after the Democrats worked to trim the bill's price tag down to about $2 trillion, Manchin would not play ball. In December of 2021, Manchin said he was a no on the legislation and expressed concerns about the bill's potential effect on inflation and about how the spending costs were being calculated. Just goes to show, never say never. True. In July of 2022, Manchin reached an agreement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to vote yes on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which calls for only $437 billion of spending and targets $300 billion to reduce the federal deficit. In a statement, Manchin said the bill will, quote, cut the inflation taxes Americans are paying instead of risking more inflation with trillions in new spending. And I'm not exactly sure what an inflation tax is, but we'll nope. leave that one alone. In the interest of time, that seems best. Please tell us what key provisions were dropped from the Build Back Better Act to get the price tag down. Oh, you know, basically just all of the education and child-friendly provisions like universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, the expanded child tax credit, and lower childcare costs. CNN actually ran an article called Not the Year for Women and Parents, highlighting all of the childcare provisions cut from the bill. I mean, it makes sense. This isn't the Titanic. We're not interested in saving women and children. I am. I am too. We, I, there I did it again. We, okay. as in Congress, not the Titanic. Well, maybe we are the Titanic. Leaving that one alone too. Okay. Sinking ship. Many potentially beneficial provisions remained, including about $369 billion to incentivize a shift toward cleaner energy, a $64 billion extension of the Affordable Care Act to help individuals pay their private insurance premiums, an opportunity for Medicare to negotiate prescription drug costs, 
and caps on the out-of-pocket cost of prescription drugs for Medicare beneficiaries. Lastly, there's about $4 billion of spending earmarked to facilitate Western drought resiliency to address the 22-year drought hitting the Western United States. Yes, see? We've already tackled number one. Impressive. On to number two. Let's overview the energy tax incentives in the bill. All right, I can, I can do this. The bill takes a two-pronged approach and offers tax incentive both to consumers and to businesses. Cool. On the consumer side, the first item up for discussion is the new tax credit for purchases of electric vehicles. And I probably shouldn't have called it a new tax credit. Explain. Yes. Okay. So the bill modifies the existing credit for electric vehicle purchases by simultaneously making it more expansive and more restrictive. As only our Congress could do. It's pretty impressive. The credit gets more expansive because it now applies to purchases of used EVs as well as new, and because it eliminates an existing cap on the number of cars that can qualify for the credit, which is cool. Taxpayers might also be able to attain the benefits of the credit immediately at the point of sale, rather than having to wait until tax time when they file their tax return. And those are all good things. I'm not going to argue with that. Agreed. But the credit is also more restrictive than the existing credit because, first of all, it will become more difficult for cars to qualify. The new credit has very strict rules about the allowable contents of the car's battery, and those rules actually get tougher over time. It's also more restrictive because it has vehicle price caps. For example, a car can't cost more than $55,000 to qualify for the credit, and a truck, van, or SUV can't cost more than $80,000, and those are for new cars. To put that into perspective, a 2022 Tesla Model X SUV starts at 120000 Leave it to Elon to build a car that only the rich can afford. And leave it to Congress to not give people credit for buying a Tesla. There are also income limits for taxpayers, which I find interesting. And that makes me wonder how that point of sale feature you mentioned could possibly work. Agreed. Like, are you going to have to bring your tax return to the dealer? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the guidance that emerges on that one. And I got to corroborate your pessimism because there's some concern about how effective this new EV car tax credit might be in the near future, given these stringent requirements for cars to qualify. John Bazella, chief executive of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, said, quote, the $7,500 credit might exist on paper, but no vehicles will qualify for this purchase over the next few years. So stay tuned on that. Moving away from electric vehicles, the bill also offers a tax credit for installation of residential solar panels. This provision essentially extends and enhances a current tax credit, which is equal to 26% of qualified costs to install solar panels. The credit percentage was set to drop to 22% next year. The new credit increases the percentage to 30% through 2032. And if we assume a $25,000 average cost of installation, that jump from 22% to 30% translates to roughly about $2,000 of incremental credit over the next 10 years. It's not enormous, but it's not nothing. Just like most individual tax credits. Uh, yeah, true facts. The bill also offers various rebates for purchases of energy-efficient home appliances and for reductions in whole home energy usage. Now let's go to the business side of things. The bill enhances existing tax credits aimed at incentivizing renewable energy. According to the Democrats' summary of these energy provisions, the bill invests $30 billion in tax credits to, quote, accelerate U.S. manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and critical mineral processing, and another $10 billion in credits to build clean technology manufacturing facilities that make electric vehicles, wind turbines, and solar panels. 
There are also tax credits for clean sources of electricity and energy storage, clean fuels, and to reduce emissions from industrial manufacturing processes. And is that it for number two? We are totally going to pull this off. Let's move right along to number three on the to-do list, talking about the corporate tax increases enacted to pay for these spending provisions. So the bill is estimated to raise $737 billion in total revenue, with the vast majority of that coming from increased taxes and tax collections. The single biggest tax revenue raiser is from the 15% corporate book minimum tax, which is not at all to be confused with the 15% global minimum tax countries agreed to in theory last summer. That's right. And there actually has been some confusion among people who should know better on the social media, on the Twitter. Fair. But it is different. We're talking about the 15% corporate minimum tax on book profits, which we have let our disdain for be known on a prior episode. Yes, we have. So we're not going to subject you to our rehash of all of the details of that or rehash all of our disgust here today. Let's just say yuck. Let's just say yuck and hit the highlights and focus on the differences between the finalized tax and its original version, which we dragged through the mud last year. At a high level, the corporate book minimum tax applies to U.S. corporations with adjusted book income over $1 billion and foreign corporations with average U.S. income over $100 million. So it's expected that fewer than 150 companies are going to be subjected to the tax, which is expected to raise about $222 billion over 10 years. And as its name says, the tax is what we call a minimum tax. And we've had minimum taxes before, both at the corporate and the individual level. And what that means is that companies basically compute their regular tax at the current statutory tax rate of 21%. They're also going to compute this alternative tax as their adjusted book income times 15%. And they're essentially going to pay the higher of those two taxes. So one of the big differences between the final version and the one that was originally proposed, companies are going to be allowed to claim accelerated depreciation under the tax code when computing adjusted book income. And this provision will dramatically reduce the impact of the minimum tax on corporations with high levels of capital investments over the next few years. The new version of the tax also allows companies to use tax credits for research and development, investment, and green technology to offset up to 75% of their regular and minimum taxes. And this makes sense because the bill just introduced a ton of tax credits aimed Mm -hmm. at green investments, so it would be a little contradictory to strip those incentives from the most profitable and at times the most innovative companies. Just a bit. Another important thing to note is that companies get a credit for the minimum book tax, and that can offset their regular tax liability in future years. And this is a really important point. The idea behind this provision is that the tax will be borne most by companies who otherwise would consistently pay tax at a rate lower than 15% of their book income. For companies who just have a single year blip and happen to owe the minimum tax, they can subsequently recoup that extra cash layout. This tax also applies to worldwide income. So not just what companies earn in the U.S., but also what they earn in foreign countries and thus it allows for foreign tax credits. But interestingly, it does not allow a deduction for foreign-derived intangible income, and that was a provision enacted by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to incentivize multinationals to keep their valuable IP in the U.S. 
So Lisa, as our international tax expert, what are your thoughts on the interaction between this new minimum book tax and the current international tax provisions we have in place? As the resident international tax expert, yes. my official opinion yes. is that this makes my head hurt. Yeah. So I have a spreadsheet that was originally put together by Marty Sullivan at Tax Analysts. And it's cool because it shows how all the different international provisions in place after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, like the foreign tax credit and that foreign derived intangible income deduction that you talked about, how they all interact with one another. And let me tell you, it's already a mess. I can only imagine. And so now we're taking that mess to a whole new level. Again, as only our Congress can do. Agreed. All right. So international tax provisions are a bit of a hot mess from a U.S. perspective. Mm -hmm. What do you think that this new tax means for the potential passage of the global minimum tax, that other 15% tax that we talked about last year? Yeah. I mean, it's disappointing that we didn't update our existing global minimum tax to match the current global minimum tax provisions that we agreed on a year ago with other countries. And so that doesn't bode well for our ability to sign on at some point in the future. But the good news is that it also doesn't prevent the rest of the world from moving forward with their agreement either. And the agreement is clever enough that it doesn't require participation of all countries. So it can still be an effective global minimum tax without U.S. participation. And it would not be the first time that the U.S. was not part of a global coordinated effort to, uh, to address tax issues. Nor the last, I suspect. No. All right. So that was the corporate minimum book tax, which is the, the largest source of new tax revenue. The second largest source of new tax revenue is coming from a 1% stock buyback tax. Now, it's fairly self-explanatory. Companies are now going to be required to remit a 1% excise tax on the fair market value of any share repurchases that they make during the year. This is only going to apply to public companies. That tax is expected to generate $74 billion of revenue over 10 years. And the quote logic, I'm going to put that in quotey pause. As is deserved. Behind the tax is that it would be better for the economy if firms didn't repurchase their own shares, but instead reinvested any extra cash on hand in the business. Which goes against corporate finance theory that you should put the cash where it's going to get the best return. Mm -hmm. Some research suggests that stock repurchases actually fuel economic growth. So a recent study by Richard Booth estimates that individuals reinvest 95% of the funds they receive through share repurchases in other public companies. This buyback tax could disturb this process of investors essentially recycling their investments from one firm to another. And another potential issue is that the tax might not meet its revenue estimates mm. because it turns out that firms have multiple ways that they can return cash to their shareholders. Yep. Yes, they can repurchase stocks, but they can also pay dividends. So firms might actually switch to paying more dividends instead of using share repurchases in order to circumvent this new excise tax. Mm -hmm. Based on research by Jim Paterba at MIT, the Tax Policy Center estimated that this tax could increase dividends by about 1.5%. The act also extends a limit on the amount of losses that investors in pass-through entities like partnerships can deduct on their individual returns. The limit was initially put in place by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and limits the amount of losses individuals can deduct at $500,000 for married filing jointly taxpayers and $250,000 for single taxpayers. These limits were set to expire in 2027, but this act extends those limits for two more years, and this provision is expected to generate about $52 billion. That brings us to number four, discussing the IRS budget increase. The act gives the IRS a much-needed infusion of cash. $79.6 billion, to be exact. Holy guacamole. Will be used 
not for guacamole, but for enforcement, operations support, which includes things like rent, postage, and technology, taxpayer services so that someone can actually answer the phone when taxpayers call, and upgrades of business systems. And pens. Don't forget the pens. And pens! The Congressional Budget Office estimates that this increased spending at the IRS will generate roughly $200 billion, which means this provision should net around $120 billion in additional revenue. And that leaves us with number five, which is discussing whether the Inflation Reduction Act will, in fact, reduce inflation. And there is no way we're going to finish this in time. Ha! You are wrong. We can totally finish because the answer to that question seems to be an uncontroversial no. Yet. Nine. The Penn-Wharton budget model projects that the act would reduce inflation by around 0.1 percentage points in five years but notes that the estimate is not statistically different from zero, which indicates, quote, a low level of confidence that the legislation would have a measurable impact on inflation. Other sources concur. What's in a name? That which we call the Inflation Reduction Act by any other name would also not reduce inflation. the good, the bad, and the ugly. And again, we're not going to dilly-dally here. It's good that Congress is taking steps to address important issues like climate change, for once, and rising healthcare costs. Full stop. Agree. And deficit reduction as well. And we can quibble about the quality of the tax provisions intended to fund this important spending, and we have, and we will continue to. Mm -hmm. But I think it's safe to say, at least from our perspective, if I can speak for the both of us. You can try. That these are pressing issues. Sure. Another good thing is that we successfully made it through our ambitious agenda. You see, we can accomplish a great deal when we aren't referencing obscure TV shows, movies, and song lyrics. Okay. All right. All right. Moving on to the bad. From a broad policy perspective, I'd say it's bad that some of the other really important issues you mentioned had to get cut from the deal. Hmm. From a tax policy perspective, I'm disappointed to see the carried interest provision get cut from the bill. Oh my gosh, yes. The carried interest loophole. Where did that go? It's lost. Gosh. We're probably going to have to do a whole separate episode on this topic. Yes. Rumor has it that the provision was cut fairly late in the game to appease Senator Sinema. Rumor has it that Senator Sinema got a whole bunch of campaign contributions from the private equity industry. So what do you think about the tax provisions that did make it into the act? Are they good, bad, or ugly? First, I want to hear you sing Rumor Has It Adele style. Rumor has it. Okay, thank you. And now I'll answer your question. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I didn't do it right. I have to I have to do it with a British accent. Roma has it. Is that better? It's what I imagine it would sound like if Kate Middleton tried to sing it. But yes, it's good. It's good. I've been called worse things. IRS funding, good. Stock buyback tax, bad. Minimum book tax, ugly. Well said and so succinct too. We should have noted increased IRS funding as a good thing to kick off this section. Yep. Um, So it's unquestionably good that the IRS is going to have more resources. Yes. And even if someone wants to argue that they don't need more enforcement resources, Mm. I think it's impossible to argue that they don't need more resources for things like taxpayer support and upgraded systems that will not only potentially streamline taxpayers' filing processes, but will also help to better safeguard taxpayer data. We should all be able to get behind that. 
But there is an ugly aspect of all of this, and that is that so many Republicans are characterizing the increased IRS funding in a frankly crazy way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So many senators including Senator Chuck Grassley, have made ridiculous claims that the IRS is going to hire 87,000 new agents specifically to target the middle class and small business owners. Senator Grassley went so far as to suggest that the IRS would have, quote, a strike force that goes in with AK-15s, which is not even a real thing. I don't even know if we should get me started on this because it's this kind of, I'm just going to say it, crap. You do speak French. The BS, le BS, that absolutely drives me nuts about politicians. Yeah. As you and I have just demonstrated over the last 20 odd minutes, there are plenty of ways to poke holes in this legislation using things like facts and information and the truth. And a brain. There is absolutely no reason to resort to such immature and I'm just going to say distasteful hyperbole to get a point across. Agreed. Treasury put together a report outlining how it would spend the money and suggested a goal of hiring closer to 5,000 new enforcement personnel. And it's worth mentioning, too, that the IRS has fewer agents now than any time since World War II because it's been unable to replace retired workers because it hasn't had the budget. Mm -hmm. And in this economy, let's be real, even if the IRS wanted to hire 87,000 new agents, good luck. They're not out there. Also, IRS agents don't carry guns. There is a division of the IRS, the Criminal Investigation Division, that has jurisdiction over federal tax crimes. They do carry guns. But these are not the auditors who are meeting with taxpayers or more likely sending a letter to your house if you forgot to like report the sale of your home or fill out a form about your health savings account. You've done both of those things, haven't you? No comment. Now, as usual, unfortunately, there is clearly overclaiming on both sides of the political aisle. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen directed the IRS not to use any new funding to increase audits of taxpayers making less than $400,000 per year. A, I'm not sure I love that directive. And B, I'm not sure how enforceable that promise is. Yeah, I got to agree with that. We've said over and over again that the IRS has been severely underfunded in recent years. So it's likely that the audit rates of all taxpayers are probably lower than they quote unquote should be. Put differently, we could probably stand to see a bit of an across-the-board increase in audit rates, except for the absolute lowest income taxpayers and, of course, the earned income tax credit recipients who are probably over-audited right now, as we've mm-hmm. talked about before. Yep. And yes, if there's a large swath of taxpayers engaging in some shady shenanigans, let's say a new tax scheme comes out and it's marketed to individuals making between you know, 250000 and 400000 are we really not going to let the IRS audit them in the name of fulfilling a silly promise? And on top of that, how is the IRS supposed to know if someone makes 399000 or 401000 until they audit them? Absolutely. We don't think people really appreciate that the IRS is operating at a level right now that does not allow them to perform their core operating duties. They have no pens. Yeah. So a significant chunk of this increased funding is needed just to get them back to where they should be after 10 plus years of budget cuts. It's not an $80 billion windfall of extra money. Right. And they are also going to need more resources to enforce these new corporate provisions that we talked about. For example, it may sound like a small thing, and maybe it is, but the stock buyback tax is essentially creating a brand new type of tax for the IRS to audit. It's an excise tax, not an income tax. Mm. 
And that means there are likely going to be unforeseen challenges for IRS auditors when auditing that tax. And that is the perfect segue into the minimum book tax. Mm -hmm. Talk about unforeseen challenges. Is the IRS going to have to understand U.S. GAAP so that they can determine whether everything's been properly accounted for in book income? What happens if they disagree with the amount in book income? Is that going to cause problems for the company if an IRS auditor disagrees with their financial statement auditor? Does this make financial statement auditors like agents of the IRS? I could not be a corporate tax auditor right now because I don't understand U.S. GAAP for the most part, (laughs) right? I think people take for granted that accountants know everything about everything, and we don't. I know a lot about taxes. I know a lot about the tax expense and financial statements. Mm -hmm. I can't audit revenue. I was never an actual accountant, so don't look at me. You're off the hook. Don't come looking to hire us, IRS. Sorry, we cannot be part of that new strike force carrying AK-15s and targeting small business owners. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.